Hey, everybody. So if you are a consistent listener to this podcast, you obviously want to be a coach that changes lives. And we try to offer practical ways to be that type of leader. But if you've been a leader for a while, you know it's not just about the strategies. Right? This vocation is emotionally and mentally exhausting. It's why Nate and I ran our first transformational leader tre- leadership retreat in July last year, because we knew coaches needed and they deserve something more. Now we're excited to announce dates and information for our 2020 uh, retreats in the beautiful mountains of Park City, Utah. You can join Nate, myself, and 12 other like-minded male and female coaches for four days and three nights. We guarantee it's a totally unique experience that's gonna help you to reflect and recharge, and we're gonna share some of our cutting edge systems and strategies to help you maximize your influence and relationships. Lastly, one of the coolest things has been the community of support, the new coaching friendships that have been formed during this time. Now, I asked head coach Luke Yanol, who attended last year's, how the experience has helped him this season. And he said a lot of things, but one thing that really stuck out for me was this. He said, I'm less stressed. My athletes are more comfortable working with me, and I have a deeper appreciation for coaching in today's transactional world. The consistent support I've also received from you and Nate and my newfound peers has also been a a source of support and guidance. Now, our 2020 dates are May 1st through 4th and August 3rd through 6th. The retreats are at an affordable price that covers the transportation to the house, accommodation, and food. Many coaches actually had the trip covered by their school or club administration as part of their own personal development last year. Now, space is very limited as it's only 12 per retreat. We've already had many coaches from last year's group and the mentorship program sign up, but we still have some spaces remaining. You can click on the link in the episode details or go to thriveonchallenge.com forward slash retreats to apply for a spot today. So go to thriveonchallenge.com forward slash retreats or click on the link in the episode details of this episode and apply today. On October 12, 2011, the Chicago Cubs made baseball history by hiring Theo Epstein to become their president of baseball operations. And the task in front of him was to clean up the mess that was the Chicago Cubs. The year before, in 2011, they had gone 71 and 91, finished 25 games out of first place. The franchise had gone 104 years without winning a World Series championship. The farm system was depleted, and you're left wondering, where does Epstein begin when it comes to changing the fortunes of the Cubs moving forward? Now, in Tom Verducci's book, The Cubs Way, he traces back kind of the roots of Epstein's approach to fixing the organization. And the place that he chose to start that would launch a run that would end that World Series drought in 2016 was to begin with an identity of what did it mean to be a Cub? What characteristics did they want in every player throughout the organization, the minor leagues and the major leagues? And what Verducci says that Epstein decided on as the foundation of what they were gonna build on is having players who wanted to compete and who wanted to win. They found that to be the most important motivating factor that they wanted in their players moving forward. Now, JP, when we think about where coaches are at, this time of year in in the basketball season or or whatever season coaches may be in without question we run into this all the time this challenge of trying to get our guys to play hard and certainly 
one approach to trying to solve that problem is just to start with, if you have the opportunity to recruit or sign players that have that in their history, that's a great place to begin. But not all of us have that luxury. And what we want to talk about this week are a variety of strategies that you can use to help get your team to play hard. We know in every sport, at every level, playing hard and with consistent effort is a competitive advantage. But we also know that things that may have worked for your team last year or a few years ago may not work with the team that you have this season. JP, while you and I both know there's no magic bullet that's going to work the same for every team, we're going to try to leave you with some strategies this week that will help your team to be able to compete at a high level in practices and in games. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin alongside my co-host Nate Sanderson. And every week in 30 minutes or less, we're giving you transformational leadership tools and strategies. This podcast is brought to you by Thrive on Challenge, which provides mentorship for coaches to help them grow as a coach and build their culture. You can learn more at thriveonchallenge.com. You're listening to episode 124, how to get your team to play harder. Now, JP, as players or coaches, we have all been a part of teams that have struggled at one time or another to play hard or to play with a consistent effort, whether it's in practice or in games. And if you're anything like me, I mean, I remember having a team 10 or 15 years ago where you know, we played a team early in the season. We beat them by 50. We played them a second time in January at their place, and we barely beat them by 19. And I remember being so angry after the game because we just didn't play hard. Like we didn't play to our potential and it, I felt like it was because of a lack of effort. So I told the players after the game, we're on the road, right? When we get back to our gym, put your practice gear on and we're gonna practice until we're playing hard. And we did, we got back to the gym like at 10 o'clock, we put our practice gear on, we stretched out again and we started practicing and probably went for about 45 minutes. So I felt like we got to that level of effort that we were supposed to be at the whole time. Sent him home at 11 o'clock, right? I remember another time at the end of a practice, again, just losing my mind because we just weren't practicing hard. So we put the basketballs away and we did this ridiculous, you know, we called it the gauntlet and it was this conditioning thing. We were a half hour late for team dinner afterwards, you know, because I kept him over. And of course, nobody wants to sit by me. Nobody wants to talk to me at the team dinner, right? And you know, some of those extrinsic motivators that we do when we, we yell or we try the motivational speech or we do the threatening, you know, more suicides or more conditioning, like those things might work in the short term. They might get you a result in that practice. I think what we all want are those intrinsically motivating things that can get a team to play hard because they want to play hard, because they want to play for each other, because they want that to be part of their identity and ultimately maybe part of their competitive edge. And I know you've worked with a lot of coaches on this, even this season, and have some ideas about other ways that coaches can approach this challenge of getting their team to go hard all the time. Well, I love your examples of the extrinsic motivators that you tried. I, I, I've definitely been that coach that's run his team immediately following the game when the, the fans are still there. I've, I've definitely done that. And I am, uh, guess I'm a little ashamed to say that I've actually spent probably two hours writing a pregame motivational talk once to get my team fired up. And yeah, what we're, we're trying to talk about is how do we develop that intrinsically motivated team when it comes to competing? I think one of the biggest mistakes I ever actually made though was I didn't identify early on who on my team was already really intrinsically motivated to compete and, and, and to play hard and, to, and to, they had that desire to win because 
not every player possesses it on the same level. Right? Some people, some of us are just ultra competitors, and and some people struggle. Uh, so we have to identify early on. I, I remember years ago I had a player who was a competitor, but I really struggled to like this player because he was more of a gamer in practice, and he didn't like a lot of the drills that I put him through. And all and looking back, my practices were pretty boring at the time and pretty mundane, especially for a guy that just wants to get out there and compete. Well, when I changed my approach with that player and I realized, man, his competitive drive, his his desire to to want to scrimmage and practice, to just want to get out in the games, that's something good. That should be something that should be nourished. And so I, I, I had to change the way I coached that player and really embrace that competitor. And when I started to do that, when I started to create more competition within our practice, run our competitive cauldron in practice, but also really highlight his competitive behaviors and embrace that and show that to the team how important that was, there was a complete transformation within our team because I think, honestly, one or two guys that are really competitive, they can really move the team forward in this area. And that's one of the big things that we've been working on with coaches over the last few weeks that maybe their team is struggling to compete hard is, who is that guy on your team that really you know, is the pulse of the team, you know, when their energy is low or when they're, when they're struggling to play hard, the team's energy goes down. And because of identifying that person and helping them to be at their best, to compete their hardest, that honestly works way more effective than trying to motivate sometimes 12 to 15 different individuals. It's a little bit easier to kind of focus on helping that one person tap in to their motivation and to their competitive spirit. You know, one of the funny things about having a, a competitor on your team is that sometimes they're not the most popular player in practice. I mean, I can think back to some of the kids that have been most competitive on a daily basis in my 18-year career. And when you're doing a rebounding drill or a loose ball drill or it comes down to one possession wins the game in practice, nobody really wants to go against those guys because they will literally do whatever it takes. You know, they're pulling on jerseys, they're undercutting somebody you know, they're they're fouling just because they just refuse to lose. Right. And sometimes even as coaches, you know, we see that kind of behavior in practice. And rather than trying to, to channel it like what you're talking about here for the betterment of the team, sometimes we overreact the other way and say, hey, you got to tone it back or somebody's going to get hurt or that's not how we treat our own teammates here. And I think you're you're right on that. There are a lot of teams that have a player that can be the switch, right? The one that if you can just figure out how to channel them in a way that benefits the team, that others will take their cues from that and you can raise the whole level just by focusing on that one individual. Yeah, I mean, I I got the privilege to play with multiple high-level players at the University of South Carolina. One of them was Ronaldo Balkman, who had a you know five, six-year career in the NBA with the Knicks, the Nuggets, and Balkman was that guy for us. I mean, my, my year at South Carolina, we'd go out and we'd lay an egg against a really, really poor team below 500. But at the same time, we would manage to, to to beat Florida, who would go on to become the national champions twice. We beat them twice. And I just remember it was it, it was because Balkman was on that day and he was present and he was fired up and he was ready to go. But if he was not ready to go, like it was, um, it was like a death sentence for our team. So one of the things that we've been working with coaches to help those players that struggle to to bring that consistent energy and that are the pulse of the team so often is called WHOOP. All right, it's a strategy 
from uh, Gabrielle Otengen. She's a professor at NYU. She's done stuff with Angela Duckworth. And I heard her speak maybe three years ago at Angela Duckworth's conference. And the, the strategy of WHOOP is, is wish outcome obstacle plan. And so you essentially work with students or people in business to what is your wish? What would that outcome look like to visualize that outcome? But the most important piece is what is the obstacle that's going to keep you from achieving that or, or, or being at that level? So with coaches, it's okay. You know, what is a great performance look like for that player? Getting that player to visualize that, to really identify them, not just playing well, but playing hard, playing with high energy, but then identifying their obstacles, the things that set them off course. And that could be stuff before the game. That could be stuff in the game, but helping the player on a personal level, identify the obstacles and then implement a plan for themselves, you know, a, a personal intervention, but also a plan for the coaches and to help them overcome those obstacles when they arise, because it is so important to get that person at their highest level, them competing as hard as they possibly can, because we know the rest of the team will most likely follow in suit. JP, I love that approach because I think it's so important when you identify with that player to engage with them just in that conversation of the influence that they have over kind of the effort level of the rest of the team because they may not be aware of it. I remember when I'm reading the Cubs way, there's a segment in there where Joe Madden talks about Dexter Fowler as the leadoff hitter for the Cubs when they went on that run. And he said the thing that he always told Fowler before the game was, you go, we go. You have a great at bat, we're going to have great at bats behind you. You get on the bases and you're aggressive, guys are going to be aggressive behind you. Like he set the tone for the rest of the lineup on a daily basis. And it wasn't necessarily that Fowler was like the clubhouse leader. He was just the guy that got it going, you know, and Madden consistently reminded him of that and kept that conversation going to try to, again, almost weaponize Fowler's ability, you know, to, to get the team started off on the right foot. Yeah. I want to circle back real quick. Also on what you were saying earlier of sometimes that competitor, maybe they're really physical, uh, or maybe they test test the limits of the rules a little bit out there and and other players or even ourselves can hey tone it down a little bit um that that's a common occurrence and I've been guilty of that but I love in uh, the man watching uh, by Tim Crothers it's a book about Anson Dorrance he he, he tells a story where Dorrance had recruited uh, April Heinrich now April would would go on to be a you know phenomenal player at North Carolina and then play for the for the national team and so April is this super competitor and she's not making a lot of friends early on as a freshman because she's really beating everybody out there and, and some of the players didn't like it. So they actually start coming into to Dorrance's office and, and Dorrance talks about how they would come in and say, Hey, what, what are you going to do about April? And, and in his mind, he's just like, I, I want to clone this girl, right? Like she's a, a fierce competitor. This is what we need more of. And so he just posed the question to, to his team of, well, do you want me to tell her to transfer to Duke? Because do you want to play against her? And they're like, no, no, we don't want to play against her. He's like, exactly. You want to play with her. And not only do you want to play with her, you need to start playing more like her. And I think this that Dorrance's story really highlights something that's really important. Not only do we need to protect the competitor, we need to protect them, to, but we need to highlight them. We need to constantly, when competitive plays are made, when, when, when effort is shown, even if it maybe causes a little bit of an injury or a little knock here or there in practice. We need to stop and highlight those effort plays, those competitive plays, that competitive spirit. We need to embrace those moments. We need to embrace those players because 
we want other players to fall in line with them and their competitive fire. I think along the same lines of being able to celebrate and highlight those competitive effort type plays in practice, I think you got to find a way to be able to do that in your game competition as well. One of the ways to do that is to quantify effort. You know, in basketball, there's 120 possessions in a game, you know, and there might be a deficiency of effort on defense could lead directly to the other team putting 10 points on the scoreboard against us. You know, what does effort look like that translates into points on the board? Well, one thing might be for us just not getting back on defense, you know, or not getting matched up is just a lack of effort and communication. It might be a, a defensive rotation where we're just slow to get where we're supposed to be. It might not be running the lanes on offense, but there are times where we've gone back through some of those plays with our team to communicate that, look, we might've lost the game by 12, but we gave away 10 or 15 points just based on our effort. Our lack of effort here allowed them to score these points, right? Or conversely, we won a game and we made all these tremendous effort plays. Look at how hard we ran the lanes and we ran right by those guys and got a couple extra layups. You know, or we drove the ball with great intensity. We got to the foul line, whatever it might be. You know, you can use victories to sort of confirm that idea that effort is a competitive advantage. And JP, if we're being honest, there's times when we're watching film of one of our opponents coming up where we'll even highlight a lack of effort on the other team, you know, in some of that scout film. Just to show that, look, if we go hard against these guys, look, they're not getting back. You know, they're not communicating here. They're not going hard there. Like, we see that as a way that we can have an advantage in the game. We're not trying to embarrass anybody, you know, our opponents. But we're just trying to highlight the fact that effort translates to points on the board, right? And trying to get our kids to understand that the, the more of those plays we make, the more competitive and better chance we have to win. Well, another thing that I think is so important, uh, and honestly, one of the most important things that we can do is that we create a practice environment that is competitive. Now, we, we've talked about the competitive cauldron in episode 52 of the podcast, and we had Brian McCormick on here, and we've talked about it in other episodes as well. But for so long, I created a practice environment that did not encourage competition. It was not promoting competition. And then I expected my team to show up on game day and then compete. And when I started using the cauldron and started keeping score within the practice on literally almost everything that we did, it really allowed not only just for the competitors to really enjoy practice, but it started to promote those competitive behaviors and probably the players that struggle in that area within their own, within their own personality. So and so my challenge for coaches is this, how c competitive is your practice environment? Are you creating opportunities for your players to compete within practice? Because if you're not, then we can't expect them to show up on game day and compete. Well, JP, I can attest that even though we haven't gone all in with a competitive cauldron like Brian McCormick uh, describes in the interview we had with him, over the last five or six years, we have been very deliberate and intentional about trying to create more competitive experiences. And sometimes that just means pitting two teams against each other or two players against each other where we're going to keep score and have a winner and a loser. You know, I think other little things that you can do in your practices, like one of the, the smallest things that we've done, I think, that has helped to encourage that level of competitiveness is that when we play, let's say, three on three, the offense, the goal is to score. The defense does not get to play offense or win the point for the possession until they gain possession of the ball. So, in other words, we don't play without a bounce. So loose balls that go off the wall or they go into the bleacher, 
they become a race. They become a competition in and of themselves because if the offense gets it, they get to keep playing. The defense doesn't get the point until they get the ball. And that may sound like a, a little thing, but it just raises the level of competitiveness within the context of that drill. And we've just really tried to find more and more little ways like that that we can add or, or change rules in some of our competitions to, to create even more of that um, competitive atmosphere. So one of the things that when I go back and I, I, I talk to former players and we kind of reminisce and I ask, you know, about their experience of, of playing for me and the things that they remember, one of the things that actually has surprised me over the years is they constantly are bringing back up Hell Day and the impact that that would have on them. And so I would set aside a time once a season where we wouldn't even bring out the basketballs, but we would literally just do conditioning for a full hour, hour and a half, maybe even two hours. And and it took different kind of shapes, you know, every year. I mean, there was a couple of years that we just did it, workouts on the beach. But the, the big thing that we were focusing on those days was just doing something really hard. It was all about effort. It was all about effort together. And it was about this, this kind of this, this shared suffering. And the hell day was, it was impactful and players remember it for, for multiple reasons. Um, one is because it, you push your players to this, this limit to the, what they think is their limit. And then you push them beyond that. And so it's actually very transformational on a personal level. It helps them to connect. But the other big thing is, it's just, you're, in, you're requiring them. You're asking them to invest so much energy and so much effort that when it comes time to the big game or when, when, when things are on the line, they can come back to those moments. Hey, we, we ran those lines. We did those sprints. We, we, you know, we did all those push-ups, and, and those investments in practice, I truly believe, translate to an investment of energy come the game day because you've invested it before. Now you're going to have that greater output uh, when it comes to the competition. Another strategy that uh, I know has worked for a lot of coaches at a lot of different levels is just to develop an identity real. I remember reading one of Gino Oriema's books about how he built the program at UConn. And one of the things that he identified as being like central to developing the culture that they have now is that as they were building, and if you remember back to when he took over at UConn, they were not good. They were not a program that had 10 McDonald's All-Americans on their bench from the beginning. But one of the things that he invested in was when he saw plays that were made that were symbolic of what he wanted the program to become. He would pull them out of the film and add them to their identity reel. And every year when they bring recruits in or every year when they'd have a new class starting as freshmen, they would always see sort of the accumulation of these reels. And they were effort plays and they were big shots and big moments. And they were also just little things, right? Like being a great teammate and having the, the bench explode, you know, and enthusiasm and all the things that he wanted to shape the program around were were seen in this four to five minute reel of highlights. And they showed it year after year. They kept adding to it as they went along. And I think, you know, if you're in the middle of your season now in January, this is a great time to start really forging the identity of your team. And you can do that by going back and finding some of those clips and say, yeah, this is who we want to be. This is how we want to play. This is our effort. This is our enthusiasm for our teammates and, and just Putting that into a little reel can be a great way not to correct players and say, look, we're not there. This isn't who we are. 
but rather to celebrate, yeah, we've seen these moments and we want to do these more and more and more, particularly as we get into the second half of the season. That is so important and so powerful because I think so often players see competing as some sort of outcome. And here you're focusing on competing and you know that is more around an identity, that they're a competitor. And I think that's a really powerful, powerful tool and message for our players. As, as we're wrapping up here, I, I'm going to just kind of come back to this, the Chicago Cubs story that you started this podcast with, Nate, where you know Theo Epstein, he went out and he was – scouting, identifying, and signing players to big contracts that he believed were competitors that had this fire and this will to win. Now, most coaches that listen to this podcast do not have millions of dollars and they don't have the scouting system, but we do have a choice. You know, we choose who we recruit at the collegiate level. We choose who we select often at the high school level. And all of us choose who plays in the game. And I think it's really important that we're making choices and we're playing the players that are competitors. When it comes to recruitment, when it comes to selecting players, I think it's we often are pursuing sometimes the wrong players in our program. You know, one of the biggest challenges that I faced as a high school coach for many years was, you know, our football team was very successful and the players would come very late into the in, into our season. And that was always a big challenge you know, getting them up to speed with our offense. But boy, were we excited to see them at the end of the day because often the case was those were some of our most competitive players. And just by bringing their competitive energy into the practice, it didn't matter if if they knew what the offense was or what the defense was. They just wanted to go out there and compete and want to win. And because they came into the program, that made us better. That made us a much more competitive team. And I think so often as coaches, and today at the high school level, we shy away from the multi-sport athlete. We want guys that specialize, that are in the gym 12 months of the year. And and I do understand the value in, in, in having players that, that specialize at, at some stage and are really committed to their sport. But at some stage, we just need to go out and find competitors. Now that's it for today's episode. Just a reminder, the Thrive on Challenge retreats dates, the re- they have been released May 1st through 4th. August 3rd through 6th, you can apply for a spot. They're very limited spots, but you can apply for them at thriveonchallenge.com forward slash retreats. I'm also putting a link in this episode details. I'm telling you, this is an experience you don't want to miss. It was one of the best three, four days of 2019 for me, and I cannot wait for 2020. Um, But don't just take my word from it. I've also stuck a link in the episode details um, of our attendees from last year, of them sharing their experiences and what it meant meant to them and how it's helped them moving forward. 